0: Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're carrying on with our study through 1 Corinthians. The title of our message this morning is Division and Separation in the Church. Division and Separation in the Church. And we recently finished a section that dealt with male headship, and we really challenged men on the accountability that they'll have before the Lord on the fact that throughout society, men are responsible to be spiritual leaders and to be godly, and that God will hold them accountable in that. And so, if you missed that, <laughs> let's just open up all the doors. Um, Division and Separation in the Church, the title of our message this morning. Uh, We're for unity. We want unity, right? I do want to begin, let me just begin by a few things. Last week, I know we prayed for Ukraine. We spent some extra time in the beginning praying for Ukraine. And I heard a special report this morning from one of our missionaries that's exciting, and I want to encourage you with that. Christian Anderson is here for the... Missions conference. Christian is a missionary in Berlin, in East Berlin is where his church is at, and they have a training center there as well. And uh, he's telling us that, um, uh, so some of our missionaries who are in Kiev uh, have people in their churches who are trying to get out, and so they're helping them to get out. We have missionaries in Poland who are helping them to get to Poland, and then there are some trains that go straight from Warsaw down to Berlin. And people in his churches are helping get resources and make connections with some of those who are fleeing out of Ukraine. So that's kind of exciting. Please pray for that, the network of churches, not just our missionaries, but also our missionaries as they work together to try and really reach out to specific families who have been shepherded by and have connection with uh, Grace Church. And it's, it's exciting to see that kind of f- that unity and that friendship and that kinship uh, taking place even under such... Agonizing circumstances And along with that I, I wanted to revisit something that we talked about Last time we were together a few weeks ago When I was teaching on Headship, male headship uh, in society And I talked about we Remember we talked about The roles of women uh, In church and in society And we talked about the fact that uh, To say that Women cannot lead in everything Goes too far scripturally Because and I gave the example of, for example, leading in prayer. There are many women who are great leaders in prayer and devoted to prayer and just trailblazing in the area of prayer. And then I talked about well, what about the leadership in a, like a, a, an elementary school classroom? Um, and what about leadership in a business office? And then we jumped and we said, what about leadership as the President of the United States? And we talked about what conditions biblically would be necessary for a woman who is a Christian who wants to honor the Lord to serve as a president of the United States. And, and I'm not going to go back there and get into all that, but it occurred to me afterwards, and I was thinking about this, as I often do when I'm listening to Pastor John, I'm thinking about, man, I could have said that. But um, uh, I was thinking about, though I was making a point about different spectrums, I didn't like the spectrum that I painted because leading in prayer actually should be past being president because if you think about it from an internal perspective like let's say you're going to have somebody over for lunch today and uh you found out that the person you're going to have over for lunch is the the president of the united states or a former president of the United states or or let's say the president of ukraine would happen to be here and wanted to have lunch with you today Uh, and anybody, would anybody want that? I mean, would that be something else? Let's suppose that the president of Ukraine had just brokered peace between Russia and Ukraine, and you would have said, wow, this is amazing. I'm having the the president of Ukraine wants to have lunch with me. From an eternal perspective, any peace between Russia and, and Ukraine is nothing compared to what can be accomplished through prayer, because a little old lady who prays for someone to be saved and God opens the heart of that person, and that person is redeemed from their sin and eternal punishment to glory with him for all eternity. That is much more significant from an eternal perspective than any kind of political decision or act that could be made concerning our world. And so one person faithful in prayer can accomplish much more than all the politicians in this world put together. That's that's an amazing thought. And I was thinking about that, that that though we were trying to make a point of various levels and areas of service, um, I I don't want to discount at all prayer. And when we think about prayer, uh, and I think about the impact it has, and the illustration I just gave of who would you rather have, over for lunch today, a little old lady who's a faithful prayer warrior or the president of a nation, in a sense, there should be this sense of excitement and joy and kinship over somebody who's a faithful prayer warrior more than somebody who's just changing temporal things from a worldly perspective. And that ties in, I think, with our message today because it has to do with how we treat other people. And there should be something in the church that we find that is vastly different than the way the world treats one another. People should come to the church and see how we interact with one another as a fellowship group and say, this is so different than anything I'm ever used to, I can't understand it. And this is what Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth about, because they weren't treating each other differently. They weren't treating each other as they should. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 17. And please follow along with me. It says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must, be, there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. We come to this passage and there's a huge contrast here between what communion time should have been and what communion time was. And we'll be seeing that in next week as well as we come back to this passage and look more at communion. But just as a way of introduction, I want to just have you, give you an opportunity for you to share with me some of the reasons why we celebrate communion. Why, we, why do we participate in a communion service? Why do we take the bread and the cup on a Sunday morning? Why do we do that here at Grace Church? Why do churches all over the world do that? What is it to accomplish? What are the reasons for having communion? Like doing it together corporately. So a corporate reason. So for for fellowship, you would say? Is that it? To show fellowship. It's true because communion is actually, uh, part of it is this idea of fellowshipping together. And the word communion is the word fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says is not the cup of blessing from which we bless, a communion in the blood of Christ. And so communion, the word which we use for the Lord's Supper, is, means sharing. It, the word is koinonia. It's used as fellowship or sharing or partnership. It's even used in Scripture to describe giving, to support someone else who's in need. It's a partnership. Um, one commentator says, when we remember his death for us and his becoming sin for us, his taking our penalty upon himself, redeeming us, all of which are represented by his shed blood. We participate in the most intimate and real communion with him and with all others. So there's a time where we're thinking about, hey, we have a partnership. Christ died for us. And you're thinking about one another and the fellowship that we have as a body. So that's part of it. What's another reason why we have communion? Yes. Accountability. Because um, it gives you a chance to think through your life and uh, there's things in your life that are not correct that you need to repent of or So let's, let's use the word self-examination. Yeah. Self-examination. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, which is where we're going to be next week. But 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28 says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and of the cup. And also in verse 31, it says... 1 Corinthians 11, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, communion is a time for you to look at your own heart. What's going on in my heart before God? How am I living before God? And it's a time for you to be right with God. And if you are not right with God, you should abstain from communion. But better than abstaining from communion is to get right with God. Communion is something only for believers and for believers who have a right heart attitude in order to worship and be right with God. There's nothing impeding them. There's nothing as far as they know of that's keeping them from having a right relationship with God. So it is a time of self-examination. And Paul highlights that big time in this passage because he wants people to know that communion is a time of self-examination. What's another reason we have communion? Yes. Remembrance. Remembrance. Yeah. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, or this is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says the same thing in verse uh, 20, remembrance here, 25, in remembrance of me of 1 Corinthians 11. So as we think about this, this is a phenomenal thing. This is amazing that, that we think of remembering Christ because Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the time of a Passover, and the bread and the cup represented something, and it wasn't Christ. The bread and the cup represented deliverance from slavery in Egypt because the Passover was a time, remember the ten plagues in Egypt, and they had a time where they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, and the tenth plague was they were to sacrifice a lamb, and they were to take the blood from the lamb, and they were to put it on the doorposts of their house and on the lintel of their house. And remember, an angel of death would pass over Any house that was protected by that blood covering and any house that was not protected, the firstborn son would die. And so you have this celebration and the cup represented the lamb that was sacrificed on that day from deliverance for Israel from Egypt. And the bread, they were to make unleavened bread. They were to quickly not let it put put yeast in it, let it rise, but it was a sense of urgency. You're going to be delivered. So there's this idea of the bread which they broke symbolized deliverance from slavery. And Jesus, on that last night, he said to them, "Um, take, eat, this is my body. He took the bread And instead of symbolizing bread that was made in a sense of urgency and deliverance, he was saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, he's telling his disciples that to carry on doing this, and every time you take this Passover bread, you're not thinking of Passover anymore. You're thinking of the Son of God who was incarnate. He was brought down here in the flesh, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, never sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Therefore, everyone who sins deserves to die. But Christ never sinned. Therefore, he never deserved to die. And yet God, in his plan, sent him here to live a perfect life. And still he chose to die in obedience to the Father to be crucified as a substitute for us. And so when we think of the bread, we're thinking of Christ and his life being given for us. And when we think of the the cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me we think of the blood that was shed his death on the cross for us the blood used to be for a lamb that was slaughtered and he says The cup now is for the Lamb, and I am the Lamb. And so, therefore, do this in remembrance of me. It must have been shocking for Jews in the first century to hear Christians celebrate communion on a weekly basis and say, or even a daily basis early on, and say, We remember Christ with these elements. So, it's remembrance. So, we have remembrance. We've talked about self examination. What else? Yes. Thanksgiving, sure, you could say gratitude, um, you could say um, renewal, a sense of renewal or gratitude. In fact, um, gratitude is the heart of obedience. Gratitude uh, for the renewal in our lives leads to obedience. And so when we think about that, we think of Titus 2, 11 and 12, which says grace is our teacher, that Teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, so we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. But when we hear the Lord's words in Luke 22, verse 19, he says, And he took bread and gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. So there's a sense of gratitude, thanksgiving, renewal. Um, that 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 when we come to communion, we should be reminded, hey, he died for me. And so when you sing songs like, man of sorrows, what a name, for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. You, you're overwhelmed. This, it's part of the reason we have communion is, is that renewal. What's, a, what's another reason we have communion? yes. So there, again, there's an idea of renewal. That's Hebrews, yeah, and, and, and this idea of sprinkled clean, and, and this idea that Christ died for us. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, in the back. Looking forward to that great yes, anticipation. If you look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it says, "For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Those last words, "Until he comes." You, there's this idea of, I'm looking forward to this. In fact, in Matthew 26, verse 29, our Lord said to his disciples, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And there's, a, there's an idea of we're coming to communion, we're drinking, we're, we're, we're remembering this, but we will drink with him one day in the kingdom. Which goes along with another reason why we do it, and that 's to proclaim to proclaim the lord 's death, um, again, first 1 Corinthians 1126 as often as you drink as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the lord 's death. so it 's a testimony it 's a testimony that we 're not ashamed of, and again it 's a time for other people to say, "Why do you do that? What is that about it 's a proclamation of christ 's sacrifice made for him so we 've seen um, it's a it's a remembrance. It's an examination. It's gratitude or renew of the renewal in our life. It's a communion or a fellowship time. It's a proclamation and it's an anticipation. Those are six reasons why we gather together for communion, and all of those are good reasons. But admittedly, we don't always have those attitudes. We're not always thinking about those reasons. Sometimes we just go and we go through the motions and we're not thinking about why we're having a time of communion. Sometimes we practice them even with wrong attitudes. And this is what he starts to get at with the Corinthians. And in verses 17 through 22, our passage for this morning, we find two concerns about the church in Corinth that, dis, that should prevent us from dishonoring Christ two concerns about the church in Corinth that really should prevent us from making a mockery of the communion table or dishonoring Christ. These concerns, the first one is that their gatherings promoted division. Their gatherings promoted division. Thinking about what we know about communion now, listen to verses 17 through 20. It says... But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper." So, because communion comes with that time of remembrance and communion and fellowship, and now they 're coming together and it 's something completely different, he says it 's not for the better verse seventeen, but it 's for the worse worse there being a comparative word represents a moral evil it 's evil what 's happening, he says in your communion services. Um, we know that not only from that word but also there's a there 's a word that he uses in this entire section which may have been a word for church or, and it's the word come together. It's this idea, it's one word in the original and it's used six times, five times in our passage, three in the passage for today, but the overall section. Verse 17, you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together in one place. Verse 33, when you come together to eat Wait for one another, he says. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. So that word is a word that was probably a phrase that, w- that they used to describe what they did when they met. We use similar phrases. We say to people, hey, would you like to come fellowship with us if they're a believer? And, and that's what we mean. We mean gather together. Or we might say, would you like to come worship with us and again, we're talking about gathering together to worship the Lord. Or would you like to attend one of our services? And we really mean, again, gathering together. And in this place, there's a huge irony because Paul is using this word repeatedly, the gathering together, and they were not gathering together. They were gathering together separately. They were gathering together with great division it's just why he says in verse 18, for the fir- for in the first place, or in other words, first of all, which this is classic Paul, Romans 3, he does the same thing. He says, first of all, and he never gets to second of all. You know how some people, my older brother speaks to me in lists, first of all, you shouldn't do it because of this reason, secondly, this, and I've gotten out of five reasons why I shouldn't do it, and, uh, and I love my brother, and I appreciate that he speaks in lists because I, I know exactly what he's saying. But uh, Paul says, first of all, and then he never comes back to anything else because... Well, it was just important, first of all. Um, uh, But when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And Paul says, I can't understand this, how you could be so divided, and yet you're gathering together. He notes that it was believable, which is interesting, because he also then recognizes that maybe there was some exaggeration going on. And isn't it true that when there is division, when people feel like they're an outcast, we typically exaggerate about the extreme situation. We say things like, um, you know, nobody cares about me. Or um, no one, there's no one in that church that loves me. Or or I've been attending there my whole life. I don't have a single friend there. Um, And and so we have these, these situations where sometimes there's a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, I remember there was one time we had a young girl in one of the churches I was pastoring, and she had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And she, uh, I I can't remember whether she was an an unbeliever, came to faith through that, or whether she was a believer who was disobedient, got right with God, but she repented of her sin. She um, came, and the church just we were a small church, wrapped her arms around her. The ladies threw a baby shower for her. One of the ladies was there at the birth of her child. Uh, afterwards, helped her settle in. And about a year later, she came to me and she said, um, I think I'm leaving the church because it's just not a loving church. And, and I, said, I said, you've got to tell me a, a better reason. I said, we've got areas we can work on, and we can be more loving, I'm sure. But if anyone has experienced love, I know it's you. And I think that sometimes when we're hurt, whatever it is, we tend to exaggerate. And Paul seems to recognize that, that he's hearing maybe just one side of the story, but he says, I have no problem believing it partly. Even if it's partly true, it's still a problem. And so he says, uh, in part, I believe it. And... There's a confusing verse here in verse 19. He says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. This Stands out, and this is the verse that, as I was prepping for this message, I kept on going back over and over again. Why is this verse? Why is this verse here? And how is it in First Corinthians? Because as since we ever started this study in chapter one, we knew that there were divisions. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, and there were different groups in the church. And yet, um, Paul had said, spoken out throughout this letter, very sternly against any kind of division. He says in chapter 1, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Or what about chapter 3, when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, For where there is envy, strife, where there are div- among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So he condemned division. And then the same Paul in chapter eleven, verse nineteen, says there must also be factions among you. There must be factions among you, as if to say, factions are a necessary thing in the church. How can verse nineteen make sense? We'll make it unrhetorical. How can verse nineteen make sense? how does this verse make sense? How is it that, he uses the word must. It's a strong word. Um, must. We don't use it so much in English. Uh, and South Africans use it a lot. You must try this. Must I? It sounds like a strong command. But I, they're just saying, oh yeah, you gotta try this. But uh, must, but Paul uses this word. It's the same word he uses in um, uh, Matthew 18 where he says, It is inevitable. So this must happen. Why does he say that? Yes. Uh, Maybe because there's people who are false believers and they're like not living right. Like of course they're going to look differently than people who are living right and trying to be right. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. There, there are people who are in the church who are not believers or who are disobedient Christians, and they're not living right, and they're causing division. And God somehow uses that for good in the church. Take a look at some of these words. The word division in verse 18, the Greek word is schismata, schismata. And it's it's we get the word schism from it. It's an idea of literally tearing two pieces of cloth apart. So it's a division. It's a break. It, sometimes it's used to speak of a rock that's cracking. It's a schism in the rock. And so there are schisms, there are divisions in the church. The other word, verse 19, factions, is listen to this word, hierases. Hierases. We get the word heresies from it, heretical, a heresy. A heresy is where you have a false teaching. But the idea of this word is not just that there's a false teaching. The bigger idea behind it is you have one group on this side believing one thing and one group on the other side believing another. There are, There's a division to the point where you have two sets of, group, of, of, of people, two groups that are at odds with one another. And that's what heresy, um, d- that's what happens because of heresies. It div- divides people. Um, and... Uh, Being factious or dividing in the church is not something that is a good thing. Um, In fact, in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, and reject a factious man. After the first and second warning. Well, what is a factious man? What is a person who is factious? What is a person who is who is actually um, uh, causing division or heresy or that separation? And it says in verse 9, he is somebody involved in foolish controversies or genealogies or strife or disputes about the law, things that are unprofitable, things that are worthless. So somebody who comes in the church and they have a separate agenda of, hey, I'm going to, uh, this is this is where we should separate, and it's not, a biblical issue that is primary but they're causing this division in the church. It's a negative retreat but remarkably God uses factious people in the church for a good purpose in order to show that look at verse 19 that those so that those who are approved may become evident among you. This is where the key to understanding what's going on here becomes clear because this word for approval is a word that means testing. It's used of precious metals where they are put under great heat and to see whether it's pure, whether it separates, or whether it stays together. And so those who are pure, it will become evident. And those who are not will rise to a certain level and they'll be removed. And we know also from Matthew's gospel in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, that we have wheat and tares together in the field that Satan plants people in the church who are not believers in order to undermine the church. And so there are going to be divisions. It's inevitable that they come, but woe to that person through whom they come. This is the idea here, what he's saying in verse 19, even though he didn't say woe to that person, he says it, Conversely, he says, there must be factions among you. Don't get me wrong. I know that there will be divisions and separation among you. But time will show who is faithful, who the ones who are approved are. And that's what he's getting at. And there was something going on here that he hasn't really explained yet. And... um he, he, he's, he's just saying that your gatherings promote division. And therefore, verse 20, when you meet together, that is when you gather together, again, that same word, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, emphasis on lords. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's something completely different. You're not having the Lord's Supper. So let's take a, part, let's take a look at the, the second concern. The first one was that their gatherings promoted division. The second concern is that their gatherings condoned self-indulgence, or their gatherings even promoted self-indulgence. Verses 21 and 22, which say this, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. I just want to pause here. Somehow people were getting drunk off communion wine. What's shocking about that statement is that's not so shocking that he even goes any further on that. He's more offended by the fact that communion is being dishonored. So he says, uh, one is hungry and another is drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So we know there's not a person here who is unaware of the fact that you are selfish. We're all selfish. We do things every day that evidence our selfishness. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, and we think of ourselves above others. Paul Tripp tells a story, I love it, of of making ice cream for his family. In their family, they have it in the evening, occasionally they have mugs of ice cream. And so he'll take ice cream from the freezer. He says, I'll go make ice cream for everybody. And he scoops it into mugs, puts spoons in. But he says, his mug, he takes a deep, you know, <laughs> you know and gets all the good stuff that's, you know, the, the whatever. And then he pushes in there and he packs it down. You know, So it looks the same from the outside as everybody else's mugs, but his is really packed in there, like twice as much ice cream as anybody else's. And he puts it on a tray, and he comes down and says, oh, I got your, you know, I got your... Oh, no, 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 not that one. This is yours right here, you know? He's terrible. (laughs) We could all relate to that. We are selfish people, and that spreads into other things we do. And evidently, the Corinthian people were being very selfish at the time that they gathered together. Jude refers to common meals. In Jude chapter 1 verse 12, it calls these meals love feasts or the agape feasts. They're mentioned a few times in scripture or referred to as common meals that the church practiced when they got together. Some, many commentators note that in, according to history, there were other uh, historical events in other pagan worships where they would come together for meals, and it was common to treat some people differently than others. Listen to these historical accounts. The first one comes from Leon Morris, which he points out that according to ancient records, quote, clubs and associations in antiquity often had communal meals that were sometimes paid for out of group funds. It was not uncommon for the food served to the diners to differ in quality and amount. Thiessen also cites associations where officials by regulation received more than others, quote, some one and a half times, some twice, and some three times normal. Now, uh, having lived overseas and having gone to potluck dinners at churches, I've seen firsthand cultural differences. I know that uh, when I was in South Africa, we had two very distinct cultures in our church. And one of the cultures, uh, <laughs> when they go to a potluck, they, they take very little of everything that they want. And then they know that they're going to come back again and get more. Um, others in our church, their culture taught them growing up that you only go up once but you can put as much on your plate as you want. And it's rude to go up twice. So you've got these two groups of people in the church, and the first people, some of the people are like, you know, just a little bit here, a little bit there. And the person next to them has this huge mountain of food on their plate. And they go back and they say, can you believe how much food they have on their plate over there, that person over there? And the other person saying, can you believe they're going up again and again and again? We're only going up once. And it's cultural, you know, conflict which you can overcome, you can overcome that. But this is not a cultural issue. This was a church, a Greco-Roman church, that was supposed to be different than the world, and they're rebuked because at their common meal, they, they evidently came together for a meal, and it seems as though some were able to get there before the others. There's an interesting word here that points that out, but it's translated in verse 21 as each one takes his own supper first. And it's speaking about each one, not everyone, but some of them were taking their own first. I think other versions say uh, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And then it says one goes hungry, another gets drunk, which is just pointing this out, that some people were eating so much food and drinking all the wine that they were actually inebriated because they're celebrating so much, and another comes evidently later, And is unable to find anything because it's all gone at the common meal for the body of Christ. The communion wine is gone. Who are the ones left out? They're the ones who have nothing. It says uh, in verse 22 at the end shame those who have nothing. So there were the have nots and the have abundances. Many commentators believe the have-nots were those who couldn't get there early. Take a quick look with me at Luke 17. Uh, Luke 17 is a different passage, a different context, but it gives us an idea of what slavery was like in um, Luke 17, verse 10. We'll start Luke uh, 17, verse 7. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done." So the context here is talking about forgiveness, Luke 17.3, rebuke one another, confront, if they repent, forgive them. Uh, and then it goes on, and here's talking about the duty of forgiveness or the responsibility of forgiveness. And they give an illustration, our Lord gives, gave an illustration of a slave. Now, in those days, try not to think about 17th century colonial slavery But think about first century Roman slavery, which had abuses and very bad, but for some people it was very good, could get them out of debt, could provide for their family. Some of them preferred slavery than not slavery. It's different than what we think of, but it still was slavery, and it was not a pleasant thing. It was a hard job to be a first century slave. But uh, it looks like we have an ungrateful master here. Does he thank the slave? No, he doesn't. It's not that he's ungrateful. It's that the slave's job, a common job for a slave would be to work in the field all day, come in, bring food, serve the master, and then clean up, and then he goes. So in our passage in Luke 17, does he thank the slave? Does he say, oh, you've worked so hard, come and sit down and eat? No, because he hasn't done anything extra. This was his job. Some people signed up to be slaves, gave themselves to be slaved for a number of years in order to pay off a debt or help provide for their family, and then it was over. But that was what it was expected to be, was that you were somebody who was serving someone else. But the picture here is that as a slave who's been working in the field all day, everything inside you... Must be saying, man, I'm so hungry. I I just, I just want to sit down and eat right now. But my job is to serve my master first, and then I can go and eat. Uh, And the illustration that our Lord was trying to get across is: you may not feel like forgiving, but you need to forgive anyways. That's what our Lord was saying. But He used this illustration that gives us a little insight, a little picture of what it was like to be a first century slave who among the church in Corinth would be showing up late for dinner? The one who had to serve other people first before he could go, that was his duty. And so it seems like the the slaves, those who were poorer, those who had jobs, that they were struggling, the have-nothings came and they were hungry. And this was what was going on in the church. So, uh, he says, that's why he said in verse 20, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Why? Just think about the contrast that we've looked at this morning. On the one side, the Lord's Supper, communion, which for them would have taken place after a common meal. But for them, communion should have involved remembrance, examination, renewal with gratitude, communion with one another, that is fellowship, proclamation and anticipation of being with our Lord. That's what we talked about what communion is. But instead, what was happening is division, fighting, self-indulgence, drunkenness, and hunger. Sin is never worth it. And this is one of those difficult passages which we're going to see sin always has consequences. And the Lord gives some insight here later on in First Corinthians 11 when he says in verse uh, 27, "...therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing so he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly." For this reason, verse 30 of First Corinthians 11, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. So what we're going to look at in, in the next couple of weeks is how is it the Lord was actually taking the lives of people in the church for taking communion in an unworthy manner. And the first reason that we understand is because we have these two contrasts of what it should be and what it was. And that's an encouragement for us to really examine ourselves and make sure we understand what communion is about and that we're taking it in a right way. We have just a few minutes left. So before we close in prayer, I want to open up, are there any questions about what was taught today? Yes, Davo. Welcome back, Davo. Good to see you. Christian's also here. I saw Christian. Yeah, nice to see you. Okay, yeah. So the word heresy in the Greek is often applied to a theological dispute about something. And if it's a false teaching, it's a heresy. But the reason why they use that word is because it creates a sect. But the same word for heresy is also translated as sect. In fact, in the Gospels, we have four groups of Jews. You have the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the um, Zealots. And there there are four sects sects with a t just just it's not genders we're not talking about four genders because that's today that's not then. but uh so when you talked about these different a different sect it is um those four the same word heresy is used and it's not because they were four different false teachings it just means division or group or set of people yes question Yeah. Um, is it one of those moments where at that moment you're praying, you're saying, you know, you're confessing to God in that moment, those things, and then on the next time you take it? Or... Yeah, I think, so communion, good question. You're taking communion, you're, you're feeling like, man, I'm not right with God, okay? Get right with God. But let's say it involves someone else. Sunday morning begins Saturday night, right? Rick Holland, everybody, amen? So, so, um, so... So when, you, so when you know it's communion, you know, and our communion Sunday, we announce it in advance. And so when you know you're going to communion service, it's time to be looking at your heart. And uh, I heard a story recently of a pastor, such a sweet story. He said that uh, there was a lady in his church who had been sort of trying to just discredit him and say some ugly things about him on Facebook. Uh, because it's private, uh, only for her friends. But anyways, um, he, uh, whatever, he, he was in turmoil, whatever. Um, he was serving communion that day. And he said, I cannot serve this. And in Providence, he was able to find her before the service began. And he said, listen, I'm supposed to serve communion today. And I don't feel like I can because I feel like there's something between us. And she says, "Brother, I forgive you. Forgive me." And they reconciled, and it was sweet. And it was in the foyer. It was right there. And he went and served communion, and he was he shared that just being very vulnerable. Uh, and and he said that he, he was not completely innocent. He's sure because we're all sinners. And while that instance may have been a miscommunication or whatever, listen, um, we we are all sinners. I, I keep this card for, for more than 25 years. I've had this in my wallet. These are my four favorite quotes. And um, I think that um, this, one, this one I've read before, but uh, uh, today we'll close with a, one, of, one of my four faves. Here, we go, here it is. This is a Spurgeon quote. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied. Oh, the music comes in. That's very nice. <laughs> for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer for the correction. If you have moral, your moral portrait and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. As John Calvin says, there's not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sin. We see the tip of the iceberg. So we're sinners, we need grace. The point of what Paul is getting at is there should be such a sweetness and a concern for other people in the church that it's evident in every time we get together. And he uses the communion time and their love feasts as just one example where they can learn that lesson. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for this time together. We do thank you for your truth. We thank you for the fellowship that we do have. I pray for this group right here, for Steadfast, that there would be such a sweetness that people would have such deep and genuine, real relationships. And there'd be such a sharing and partnership amongst one another that we would enjoy the sweetness and it would be a testimony of the work that you do to those who have never seen anything like it. And we pray that that would be contagious and spread throughout every group in this church and in your church throughout the world. May your name be exalted, beginning with our own lives. We commit this to you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.